Get your Bibles out. If you've got your Bibles, if you've got your phones, open those up. Uh, the passage will also be on the screen. I labeled this, uh, this message, and we're going to go through all of Titus chapter 3. Yes, we will do it tonight. Uh, Christian living in a hostile culture. Christian living in a hostile culture. So we just heard the passage read. I'm going to have it up on the screen here. Um, but one thing I want us to talk about, one thing I want us to think about is how are we to live as Christians in this culture that is continually moving towards hostility against the Christian faith? This culture that we lived in is steeped in perversion, it's steeped in hostility, and it is definitely embodying this negative thought process towards anyone who speaks objectively about what the scripture says. Anytime you were to take a stand in the workplace, on the internet, wherever it is, you immediately get attacked by those outside the faith. And sad to say, those even within the faith are just as bloody at getting after people when you take an objective truth stance on God's word. Go on to Twitter if you're on Twitter and you don't have to go far and you'll just see the bloodbath that is the Twitter sphere. It's sad. And the biggest thing is that when we as Christians take a bold stand, when we live a life different than everybody else, when we live the life based and rooted in the scriptures and not off of what culture tells us, we are then deemed as being divisive. We are deemed as being arrogant or cocky, especially as we stand on the word of God and we boldly proclaim that this is in fact what the word of God says. It is black and white. There's one interpretation, many applications, more, uh, also other implications, but there is one understanding, one interpretation of the text. It is not left to your opinion. Everyone loves to be entitled to their opinion. And as we look at the text this evening, we see some instances and some keys as to why is that possibly the case that we see today that Paul's addressing to Titus on the island of Crete. The first point, we're just going to go right after the jugular here. The first point, ladies and gentlemen, is you are not special. Everyone wants you to think that you're special. The world tells you that you're special. Even modern popular worship songs place you at the center of the universe and it is all self-reflective and it is all looking at yourself and it is all about me, 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 I, I, I. How can God best serve me as if I am God and God is not God? I have now replaced God. I have made God into my own image and I am now the author and creator of my universe. I looked at a couple of self-help books as I was preparing this title, and yes, I have dogged on self-help books. There are times in which those can be helpful, but when that is all you are consuming, it begins to pervert and distort your mind. Listen to these book titles. How to Stout Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. How to Build Confidence and Win at Life. Self-Mastery Begins With You. See, this culture tells us that you are special, that you are unique. And you need to focus more on yourself and become the best possible version of yourself because you have it already in yourself. You just haven't tapped into it yet. And so what this does is it makes us very introspective thinking that we just continue to look inside of ourselves. And if we try hard enough, if we work hard enough, eventually we will receive some form of success in our life. But what end, ladies and gentlemen, what end are we pursuing after in cultural success? What is the standard of success that these authors and writers are going after? What is the standard of success that these Instagram influencers tell us that we need to be modeling after them? Follow me for more recipes, right? Like all of these people are saying, this is what success looks like. I'm curating success. You want to follow this. Follow me as I follow myself. Imitate me as I imitate other people. And it's this continual self-circle, self-serving, self-licking ice cream cone that people continually 
fight after and long after. But what I ask and what I wonder is how are these pursuits after success that the culture tells us what success is, how is this grounded? Where are they grounding it? What is the standard to which we can measure and say, okay, that is what success looks like. I'm down here on grade A. I need to get up to grade B to get to this form of success. There is nothing. Is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It is a continual chasing after the wind. You will never achieve what the culture is trying to sell you. And the more we invest and we bite off of what culture tells us, the less we are looking at Christ, the less we are in God's word, and the more we are looking at ourselves as we continue to place ourselves in the driver's seat and we tell God to sit over here, don't take over until I get tired, and then you can take over the wheel, but I'm still going to sit in the seat. You can just drive from the passenger side. And this happens all the time. Sadly, even in our own Christian culture, everything about Christian living in our era for our age group has become diluted. It has become distorted. And the days in which young men and women would stand up, confront and call out false teaching and doctrine, all of those days, most of those people have faded away. You know, I grew up in different cultures and stuff. And then as I started to study God's word, there are these titans of the faith that I just looked after. I listened to their sermons. I poured into their books. And sadly, God has been calling them home. Who's taking their place? Who and where is this next generation that is going to step up and take a bold stance and say, culture, we're done with you. This Roe versus Wade stuff that has been happening that I've been seeing people post has been literally driving me up the proverbial wall because of the illiteracy, the complete illogicalness of what they're purporting. My body, my choice, this and this and this. One tweet that I saw that someone reshared it had thousands and thousands of like, well, the government better start telling mothers about the formula shortage before they start forcing them to have babies. This was a legitimate tweet I saw. What would have happened if I said life begins at conception, life begins before conception, I would get just obliterated. Where are the men and women who are willing to go to battle? If I look back at the past 30 years and we see godly men take a stand against the culture, we see them combat and take doctrine to the battlefield. But sadly now the culture has browbeaten Christians down and we have rolled over and taken it. This tide, ladies and gentlemen, can change. The sway of opinion will change, and it starts with understanding this very important thing. You are not special. When you realize that you are not special, things make perfect sense. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says this to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to their rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Look how Paul is commending Titus to remind the church on how they are supposed to behave to the outsiders. He gives him seven qualifications that we as Christians are supposed to live in accordance with in the way in which we are conducting our behavior in the way in which culture looks in and sees that we are in fact different. We're not full of a bunch of hypocrisy. We are actually living in accordance with the scriptures. Look at these seven. 
One, we are supposed to be submissive. Two, we are supposed to be obedient. That right there, you, if you can even be one of those two, you're already winning against culture right now. No one wants to be submissive to this government. No one wants to be submissive to their bosses. No one wants to be submissive to authority. Obedient, no one wants to obey anything. It's choose your own adventure on what rules and laws you wish to follow and ignore everything else. The third one, we need to be prepared for good works. And the only way you are preparing yourself for good works is for training yourself to get ready when that opportunity comes to do a good work. Look at number four, speak evil of no one. Again, you do that already, you're winning against culture. You're not engaging in these dialectical talks that people are saying and these instances of which people are trying to gossip about each other. Look at number six, be gentle in conduct. Number seven, be courteous. Everything in this list can only be done if you are humble enough to admit that you are not special because of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not special, nor do we contain any kind of speciality intrinsically. We do not possess that. Nothing about ourselves prior to Christ is good. Nothing about ourselves prior to Christ is capable of good. So if I am not capable in and of myself of producing good works outside of Christ, what does that tell me now after I am in Christ? That is where we're going to be really dissecting the text here. Now, every book that I previously mentioned about the self-help stuff and every cultural mantra is in direct opposition to this conduct list. You don't like your job or coworker? Tell them off. You don't need that negativity in your life. You are the best. You answer to no one. You control your own destiny. You put in the work and you cut out those of your life who can't help you. Does any of this sound familiar? Christians, we are called to have a much different understanding that is based off of an objective standard. These self-help books do not have a standard to which we can compare and measure to see what is perfection. However, the Word of God is our standard, is our measure of perfection. Why are Christians supposed to act this way towards outsiders? If I'm not special and I need to humble myself so that I can follow the seven lists, how am I supposed to act this way? Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does that not sound like our culture today? Does not everyone hate each other? Is there not either this side or that side? There is no middle ground. It's this side and this side. And church, you need to get your hands dirty and get into the weeds with this and participate in these social construct issues and negate the primary calling of the church, which is proclaiming the gospel and focusing and growing in disciples. No, I need you to address all of these issues. The gospel is above all of that. The gospel addresses all of that because the, all of this is rooted in original sin. All of this is rooted in the initial cause of why we need a savior to begin with, which is why we have nothing perfection of ourselves, nor are we special in and of ourselves. Prior to Christ, we were those people. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were slaves to the culture in the world. And we thought that we were, and most likely are, the most important and the most special person. And here's, here's the thing, as, as I was thinking about this, is how the culture tells us what success is and how we once were living prior to Christ and how in which God has now freed us. This is typically what you see as people say, copy me as I copy this person and here's the tools for success. Our world, when we are looking inside of ourselves, when we think that we are somehow special, 
Our world is only as big as the largest mirror we could look at ourselves in. We continually look deeper into ourselves, attempting to better ourselves off of the world's standard because we assume, and we assume that we are the most important person to exist. But what changes? What changes for how we used to act, how we used to be foolish, how we used to be disobedient? Look at verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This verse shows us that we have received something in which we did not reserve. I was not special enough or good enough to receive this from God. I received this completely unmerited. We were gifted by salvation. We were gifted salvation by the very standard in which we are now comparing our lives to, that perfect standard. A perfect sacrifice died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It's very clear. So as we were once staring in the mirror, looking at ourselves, polishing up our nice little accomplishments, and boasting in the success we had, it's ultimately leads to meaningless and is empty of any actual true lasting significance. The last thing a person dying on their bed says is, I wish I had more money. The thing that they say on their dying bed is, I wish I knew what was coming next. I wish I knew where I was going next. I wish I would have lived my life in a better way, a more purposeful way. And the only way you can have that kind of a life is if it is something outside of yourself. It is something extrinsic, not intrinsic. Because if I'm always relying on myself, I will always fail myself. Is that not true? Do you not fail yourself continually? I know I do. Maybe someone in here is way better than me, but I am consistently failing myself. And if I continue to look in myself, like, no, Ethan, you can do better. You can do better. No, I won't. No, I won't. In and of myself, I cannot. I want to. I try to, but I can't. Christ pursued after us. He washed us in his grace and mercy and regenerated us to be made alive in Christ. Look at verse 5. He saved us. How? Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We didn't earn it. We didn't work and toil and strive for it. Because guess what, guys? Because we're not special. We weren't like neutral about God prior to Christ. We weren't indifferent to Christ. We we're in complete rebellion and rejection of Christ prior to Christ coming in and supernaturally saving us. That is why we're not special, because we have done nothing to merit or earn that salvation that God has lavishly given to us. He gave it to us. And not only did he give it to us, look at how he gave it to us. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us, poured out on us, how? Richly. What means? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He poured out. That word poured out means distributed largely. Right? That's like going to the buffet and you're wanting to get all that mac and cheese and you're at the cafeteria at school and they only give you a scoop. But then when you go to, I don't know even what the buffets are. I hate buffets now, but there's those buffets, Golden Corral. I don't know if that's even in existence. You would just load it up. There used to be a buffet here. There's actually two buffets here in Pensacola, Ryan's and what's the other one? No, no, no. I'm talking back in the 90s. This is before y'all. 
Anyway, can't remember it. And I remember as a kid, I loved going to the buffets because all I would eat, mac and cheese, french fries with tons of cheese sauce, and I could put it lavishly on my plate. And the only thing I would get is my mom and dad looking down their brows at me saying, that is too many carbs, son. I'm like, I don't care. I'm nine years old, I can do what I want, and I will burn this off. But look at how Christ gave us his grace, whom he poured out on us richly. This poured out is distributed largely. So were we somehow special, though, to receive this? This is where, this is the crux, guys. We're not special in and of ourselves. If I think that I was somehow special, that I had done something to merit or inherit this, then that means I had something to contribute to my salvation. That means somehow I have chosen my own destiny. I have done something to earn this salvation. If we assume that we have done something to earn or inherit this gift of salvation, that makes a very clear distinction that you need to understand. That makes salvation contingent upon us. If I've done something, that makes it contingent upon me, and that is stealing complete power from God, and that is in direct opposition of what this text is saying. Well, how do you know that? Look at this, verse 7. So that being justified by whose grace? His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The text is clear here, guys. Whose grace are we justified by? By His grace. And who is Him? Christ our Savior. See, if we think that we are somehow special, that we are better than someone else, then we fail to realize and actualize the true power of salvation. Instead, we think we have somehow arranged the state of affairs to lead us into salvation with Christ. And He is just sitting there just hoping we will choose Him. Ethan, please choose me. I want you to choose me. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus. Did Jesus appear to Saul and say, Saul, Saul, please choose me? No, nope, not at all. He appears to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul immediately recognizes the authority of Christ. He wasn't looking for Christ. He was looking to kill people who believed in Christ. No, the text is very clear. Who is the initiator of salvation? Look at this. I think I'm going to have this on the slides here. God extended his goodness and loving kindness in verse 4. In verse 5, he saves us. Again in verse 5, not according to our actions. Also in verse 5, according to his mercy in verse 5. Verse 5, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom God poured out through Jesus. Verse 7, justified by his grace. Now let me ask you this. Where do you see mankind in this text being the primary acting force? Do you see the words you, you have you have conducted, you have done, you have earned. It is completely vacant. It is not there. No matter how hard I try and see, okay, what did Ethan do to be special? I know I'm special. My mom and dad tell me I'm special. My wife tells me I'm special. My kids tell me I'm super special. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that my teachers also said I'm very, very special. <laughs> but we're not initiating anything anywhere in this text. Do you guys see that? There's not one time that there is anything in relation to, and person did this. It's everything is coming from God to us. So when we can recognize that, that's a starting point for us to really have our eyes open to see why everything else can make sense in this world if I first start at how and which and what it is that I have done to earn salvation. I've done nothing to earn salvation. It is a free gift that God has given. We are not in this text, no, 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 no. But we are in this text, and here's how. We're the recipients of all of these blessings. 
We have received these blessings. And when we understand that we receive salvation from God, not a part of anything we do, we begin to decrease and Christ increases. We begin to die to self and we allow Christ to be where he has always been, but we have just neglected to recognize that that is in fact where Christ is. That God is God and we are not God. No matter how hard we work, we are not God. We will never be God. We will spend more time pursuing after him and less time pursuing about ourselves. The truest type of self-help that you could ever hope to have is understanding and recognizing who you are and that your identity, if you believe in Christ, is in him. Because that never changes. Philippians 1.6, we saw that. He began this good work in you. He will see it until the day of completion. Now, that doesn't say I don't have any kind of moral responsibility at maintaining Christian living and standards. No, no, no. Far from it. And this is what Paul is reminding Titus to remind the church. When we understand these things, guys, our conduct towards those outside the church will become apparent and it will be filled with the grace and mercy that God has bestowed onto us. Because I've done nothing to an inherit this. I've done nothing to receive this. It was a free gift. So now how I act towards others is not like, you don't have what I have. Stinks for you. No, no, no. I, I didn't do anything to earn this. I'm supposed to tell them. This is what the gospel tells us. I'm supposed to go and to seek and to save the lost. I'm supposed to go and to share the gospel with others and show the love of God and tell them this grace that God has given to me. I want to tell you about who Jesus is. And that is the beautiful message of the gospel. And when we understand this too, it puts us and keeps us on staying the course, growing in discipleship and in the knowledge of God. Now, the next thing that this text shows us. So first off, I think we've established that we're not special in and of ourselves. We are special because we were chosen by God. The second point is this helps us understand and have careful devotion. Look at verses 8 through 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are, they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. I know, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now here's something interesting that you need to hone in on this. And you'll see this only typically in the pastoral epistles. When you see this, the saying is trustworthy. When you see this being put out in the text, what this is saying is Paul's establishing that this is an understood statement, that this is almost a creed of sorts that the church has widely recognized as a whole, that now you also need to understand this and accept this. I'm saying that this saying is trustworthy. The churches have accepted this. This is accordance to the tradition of scripture of Christ. And this is used in different ways, but a distinction needs to be made here as this is very important at us really coming to the central point of this text. Now, there's five other times in which you see this phrase being used. In 1 Timothy 1.15, again, this is another pastoral epistle, Paul says this to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So again, we see the importance of us understanding what this means. That Christ Jesus came into the world, what? To save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy 4.9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 2 Timothy 2.11, the saying is trustworthy. 4, 
If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Notice what almost every single one of these five trustworthy, creedal statements are focusing on. The atoning work of Christ and the grace that we have received from him, with exception of the individual of an overseer, elder, of a pastor. Now what's interesting about this, as you see in Titus 3.8, we see that Titus 3.8 says this, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on such truth so that those who have placed their faith in God may be intent on engaging in good works. These things are good and beneficial for all people. These are those five creedal sayings that Paul is emphasizing to his apostolic delegates, both Timothy and Titus. When we see this saying is trustworthy, this is pointing us, ladies and gentlemen, to a point of Christian doctrine. What is doctrine, you ask? I'm glad you asked that. Here's what doctrine is. A belief or set of beliefs held and taught by church. Held and taught by the church. Held and taught by us. Now, often what you'll hear is say, people, doctrine divides. No, doctrine does not divide. Doctrine clarifies. Doctrine helps us understand truly what it is that we believe about Christ and what he has done on the cross. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. If you rearrange this verse, you can really see what is Paul emphasizing. And this is a great tool. And if you have a Bible, highlight 3a and then point it up to chapter to verse 4. And I've done it for you on this next slide here. Now read this and you will see what is the crux, what is the drama of the passage that Paul is trying to draw out and push to Titus that we as Christians in modern day can see. Look at this. I put verse 8 right before verse 4 through 7. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now you see we're getting into verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul describes to Titus the careful devotion necessary to teach, to remember, and to remind others of these items. When you are a Christian, you are a Christian of careful devotion. Because look at what this will prevent. If you devote yourselves to Christ carefully, look at verses 9 through 11. This is what it will prevent. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you are careful in your devotion, you will not become this type of a person. You will not allow culture to dictate and influence your life if you are devoting yourself carefully to the Word of God. When you carefully devote yourself to Christian doctrine in His Word, you will not be an individual who causes doubt, who brings up controversies. You will be an individual whose worth is based off of God and not off of self. This goes back to our first point of you are not special. I don't want to be special because if I think that I'm special, I am somehow continually looking inside myself to find more specialness. That's not a word, but it is now. Of course, I'm having microphone issues. So when we do this, we are looking more towards Christ and less at ourselves. We are not relying on ourselves. And this gets us into the third point here. Godly leadership is being revisited here by Paul as he's ending this letter. Look at verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, 
Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Look at that. That's a byproduct of careful devotion right there. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. faith. Grace be with you all. Now, here's what's interesting. If you just read through this on a cursory glance, you just think, okay, Paul's just ending the letter, whatever. There is so much richness in here, and there's not just richness in here. This also gives us a historical perspective at also what is happening at this time as Paul's writing this letter to Titus, who's on the island of Crete. We see, though, in this section, we see that he is revisiting, if you remember in Titus chapter 1, godly leadership principles, principles for a godly leader to replicate. If you look here, Paul is sending who? Artemis and Tychicus, where? To Titus. So now we see that Paul is sending more help to Titus to help him on his journey, to help him be ministers of the word. So we see here that Paul has now not just stopped training with Timothy and Titus. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, you see that Paul is continually making disciples, identifying leaders, training them, growing them, and then sending them out. He doesn't put them over on the side and say, I'm not going to use you, just set up camp there. When I die, maybe you can take my place. No, he's training them up, finding the need, and sending them out to that need. Now, also with this, he's sending these individuals. He's been delegating his authority to those individuals. He also is communicating clearly to Titus that he is to maintain this godly leadership principle with Zenos and Apollos. Now, who is Zenos and Apollos? We don't have much information about Zenos, but Apollos, we actually do. We can find Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through chapter 19, verse 1. And what's interesting about this is Paul's telling Titus, as Zenos and Apollos comes to you, and as they are going through Crete, they're not stopping there. We're not quite sure where they were going. Uh, Apollos eventually ends up in Corinth, but we don't think he's actually heading there just yet. But they are passing through the island of Crete on their way to the final destination, and Titus is supposed to help them along the way. This is a beautiful example of Christian community coming together to help each other out, even if, even if they're not going to sit here to bless the ministry here. They're passing through Crete. Paul is commending Titus. Titus, help these brothers and sisters out as they continue on going through. See, so often though, we start to think, well, I'm not going to get involved there because I'm only going to be there for a little bit of time. And, you know, I just, I don't think it's going to be very beneficial for me and my mental health. You know, I want to get invested. I want to help out, but I'm only going to be here for six months. So I'm just going to chalk it up and be a consumer. You know, that's a big issue. A lot of other big issues is, is you get someone passing through and it's like, hey, I want to help out. I want to get involved. No, no, no. We don't know. You just stay in your place. We don't want to use you. Just keep doing what you're doing and just participate. No, no, no. We don't see that happening in a godly community. In a godly community, we are all working together. We're all working as one because we are all working towards a common goal, a common mission. And that mission is not found in ourselves. That mission is found in spreading of the gospel rooted in Christ. So what's interesting here is that we are seeing and we see that godly leaders are sent, they're taken care of, and they are leaning on brothers and sisters for assistance. That's what's so great about international missions. I got a text from Austin. If you guys know who Austin is, he's on his way over to uh, a foreign country right now, and he had some injuries, but praise God, he was able to get through that surgery and everything else, and now he has actually left uh, to go overseas right now, and he's going to be there for several weeks. He's one of you. 
How awesome is that, that now he is being mobilized, he's going overseas to share the gospel, to aid missionaries that are over there already, to help them, to come alongside with them, to partner with them, to build and to edify them up. See guys, here's the thing about godly leaders. Godly leaders develop godly communities. If you're not a godly leader, you're not going to develop a godly community. You're going to develop a toxic, self-serving community, and no one is going to want to be a part of that community. If you've ever walked into an organization or a job or anything else, and you see that everyone hates each other's guts, I'm going to quit. Uh, this is not, not the place for me. But sadly, for many of us, you don't have an option. That is the only option you have. So what do you do? You embed yourself and you start to be an influencer within your community using those godly leadership principles. And as Paul ends this letter here, Paul leaves Titus with grace and peace to him and those who are with him. See, as we, as we end this evening, as we end the semester, I, I want us to be looking at the book of Titus. We've gone through this, this semester, the book of Philippians and the book of Titus. In the book of Philippians, we see how is a church supposed to live a Christian life in a time of persecution and false teachers. And then in Titus, we've seen what is it that a pastor is supposed to be looking like? What are the qualifications? How is a church supposed to be conducting themselves with the older generation training the younger? And then also, what does this conduct look for the outside? And then lastly, what is a godly leader? What constitutes a godly leader specifically within the confines and the context of the church? And so what I'm hoping this summer for each one of you is you take time in the Word of God to grow yourself deep in the Word of God, to cut out the sin in your life, to cut out the cultural influence in your life, to be led by the Spirit. Just give it a chance. You, you try everything else. You try pursuing after the wind. Give living a righteous, God-honoring and fearing life a chance this summer. Be in God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. Consume God's Word. Surround yourself with Christian friends. Get involved in a Christian community. If you're leaving from here to go somewhere else, get plugged in with that church. Find a church. Find a community. If they don't have a community group, guess what? You can start one. You're a person, right? I would hope so. Start a community. All it takes is one individual. Just one individual to stand up and to do something. But so often what typically happens, we all sit here thinking, well, someone else will do it and you're waiting, I'll tell you this, no one else is going to do it. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Stand up, be bold, and take charge, and take care of it yourself. And then God will bring godly men and women alongside you who have been like, man, we've been looking for you. And then, no, don't browbeat them. Be like, well, where have you been? No, no, you'll say, awesome, let's go together. Let's do this together. Because that is the way we're supposed to be conducting ourselves within the body, and that is also the way in which our conduct is supposed to be with those outside the body.